Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Blind Ambition with Jack Kelly. It's your friend, Rick from Blind, and today I'm going to introduce you to Justin Zhu and Michelle Lee. Justin Zhu is the co-founder and executive director of Stand with Asian Americans, a civil rights nonprofit fighting anti-Asian hate in public spaces and anti-Asian discrimination in the workplace. You might be familiar with Justin as he was previously the co-founder and CEO of Iterable, a $2 billion marketing technology startup that powers communications to billions of users around the world. And Michelle, she volunteers as counsel to stand with Asian Americans, focusing on its workplace justice initiative. Previously, Michelle served as the general counsel of investments at Portfolio Advisors for 15 years and as an associate at Latham & Watkins for two years. Thanks for coming on the show, Justin and Michelle. Thanks so much. So hopefully I did your bios some justice, but just in case, can you walk us through your career? Why don't you start us off, Justin? Sure, yeah, that, that was a really great intro. Um, so I started my career uh, as an engineer. Uh, I studied computer science at Carnegie Mellon. And so my first job out of college was at Twitter uh, back in 2011 when they were about 300 people. Uh, and this is early days when we still have um, happy hours on, uh, we call it tea times with the founders. Um, and during the two years, I saw this tremendous growth at the company. And as part of the growth engineering team is where I got the idea to build my own startup called Iterable. So I spent two years at Twitter and left to build uh, what I at the time called growth as a service. Uh, and, and I saw big companies like Uber, Pinterest, Airbnb were all building up these growth marketing growth teams. And so that's where the idea for my company Iterable got started. So I co-founded that, I was the CEO. And over eight years, uh, built up the leading technology platform for cross-channel marketing, it powers communications for companies like DoorDash, Coinbase, Square, and many other top consumer companies. And over eight years, it was quite an experience in Silicon Valley. And in the beginning is where Initially, I really believed in the meritocracy uh, uh, in Silicon Valley, but over time, I started feeling and experiencing more inequities, uh, particularly as you know, an uh, Asian American immigrant founder. Um, and eventually, uh, circumstances let um, you know, with the pandemic, with the rise of anti-Asian hate, got me um, another another uh, friend of mine, Dave Liu and Wendy Wynn, to co-found. Stand with Asian Americans. Uh, so this was during the uh, uh, height of the pandemic. Uh, and as uh, many of you might remember, there was a horrific uh, tragedy, which actually we're entering the third year anniversary of the Atlanta spa shootings uh, on March 16th, uh, where eight were killed, six were Asian women. And so during the time uh, um, I was CEO of the company. Uh, I immediately had a, a company-wide statement. We put up a public statement as well on our social medias. But as the days gone by, uh, I was disappointed by the lack of mainstream media and corporate leader uh, statements on anti-Asian violence. And so that's where uh, Dave, Wendy, myself, and a bunch of volunteers, we got together. And over the course of 10 days, we gathered a thousand signatures, calling out um, the anti-Asian violence in Atlanta, 
uh, calling for resources for Asian American nonprofits and ensuring the fair representation of Asian Americans, all Americans in the workplace. And that letter we put into Wall Street Journal and that uh, created really national and international media attention on the issue. And it was the first time such number of Asian American leaders got together and signed a letter of such importance and, and sensitivity around our, our community issues. And so that's what spawned uh, uh, Asian Americans uh, coming up about three years ago. Uh, and, um, you know, go on to more of you know, how Samuel Asian Americans and how the activist, how the advocacy has changed my life. But that's the general course of my uh, career. What about you, Michelle? Um, so, um, you know, I, I started my career at Latham and Watkins, which is a big law firm. Um, when I went to law school, you know, I was the first person in my family to have gone to any professional school and growing up, um, as a child of immigrants, most of my parents' friends were, you know, small business owners. They lawn, you know, they ran laundromats, nail salons, sort of the typical Korean American businesses. And I had never met um, like an actual attorney um, in person. So also being a biology major, I had really no idea like what it meant to be a lawyer. And I just absorbed like this information from like Alan McBeal. Now I'm like aging myself, but like, you know, it's just like shows like that and went to law school completely clueless. I joined a big law firm thinking I have to pay off my student loans. And then, honestly, I didn't really enjoy that lifestyle at all moved in house as a very junior attorney and uh, spent the, pretty much um, all of my career at a private equity firm called Portfolio Advisors in Connecticut. Um, it was, I don't know if you're familiar with Darien, Connecticut, but it's a very lily white homogenous town. Um, even though it's relatively close to the city, it's, it's like one of the most homogenous towns I've ever um, lived in. Um, and I took certain aspects of working in the private equity industry as these sort of um, circumstances um, come with the territory of working in finance, heavily dominated by white men. But I think as I became more educated with the Me Too movement, with um, Black Lives Matter, and I was also um, the first co-chair of the DEI committee at my kid's school, public school, um, and just educating myself with all sorts of issues, I realized how systemic and widespread discrimination against Asian Americans was really uh, affecting so many of us um, and really affecting us like mentally and psychologically as well. So um, I, I started volunteering with Sam with Asian Americans about a year and a half ago, and I'm pretty much doing that um, full time now and fielding a lot of calls that come in um, through the Workplace Justice Initiative, the Sandwich Asian American Discrimination Reporting Portal. From an outsider's perspective, if you don't mind my asking, why do you think, how is this happening? Why is this happening? Are you, are you, is it, do you see more violence or is it more just maybe getting excluded from different jobs? How does this all play out? Discrimination uh, against Asian Americans started as soon as we got here, 150 years ago. The first wave of Asian Americans came here to work on the railroads, uh, to mine gold, uh, and you know, they were given a fraction of the pay that others got and you know, received virtually no credit 
Um, and it, it, the first law that uh, passed that barred uh, those of a particular racial or ethnic group to enter the country was against Chinese Americans with the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. So, so this history of discrimination um, it, it is uh, deep in our history. And fast forward to uh, the modern era when the immigration laws changed uh, in uh, 1965 that enabled uh, a lot more immigration uh, around the world. Asian Americans were selected to come work on our uh, internet railroads to work on, you know, mining virtual gold and that experience of being seen as the worker um, class where we're expected to work harder than anyone else for a fraction of the pay and you know, virtually no credit just has continued. Um, the difference now is with the pandemic and rising anti-Asian violence, our community came together to speak up on violence and what we hear in in these meetings where we're discussing our issues is, hey, there's also these kind of discrimination also happens to me in the workplace. And so that um, the uh, violence created an opening and, and the media coverage created an opening for us to speak more on our issues. Uh, and so it's it's unfortunately, it's always been there. I think for the first generations, we've just accepted it. So for our current generation, they just accepted being treated unequal because, you know, they were immigrants, they maybe didn't speak the language as well. But for um, people like Michelle and myself, where we grew up here, you know, um, we, we have just as much experience and background and mastery of the language and, and the skills as, as anyone else, you know, we expect equality in, in the workplace, really in every place. And when we don't see that year after year after year, we started questioning, hey, is this something about us? Maybe we just got to get better um, at speaking or better leadership skills, et cetera. But at some point we use, we realize, Hey, it's not just me. You know, you're seeing that in every single, uh, virtually every single, uh, category of work, Asians are the least represented in leadership. You, you wonder if there's something more systemic. And so that's what we started investigating, uh, and, and where the stories, which you'll see on the workplace justice initiative stories, which we helped launch in the media really kind of speak to that. I also want to just add that, you know, there are pervasive biases and stereotypes against Asian Americans that people don't just drop them off when they enter the workplace. Um, stereotypes such as the model minority myth that, you know, Asian Americans put their heads down and, and they just like grind and work and we don't complain. Um, and and the fact there are stereotypes about Asian Americans being perpetual foreigners. So no matter the fact that English is our primary language, you know, when just based on the way we look, we are perceived and I'm sure almost even 1.5 second generations have all heard like, oh my gosh, your English is so good. Or despite the fact that I went to Yale and Yale Law School, I still have to deal with comments like that, um, like throughout my entire life, just based on um, people's stereotypes being projected onto us. And how that, how those kind of stereotypes play out at work is that, you know, they perceive us as, you know, people who who should be just grateful to be, um, to have certain positions at a company or, you know, we're not going to ever complain, even if we're being underpromoted or underpaid, that we're, like, Asian Americans are not known as litigious groups of people. So when they think about treating us unfairly, the last thing on their mind is that Asian Americans are going to speak out and perhaps bring um, uh, 
a legal case against them. So like all of these stereotypes are like in the collective um, conscious, of course, subconscious, and, and it just gets played out. And I think even among Asian Americans, like we really need to educate ourselves. And I think, in fact, as we become more vocal, I think a lot of Asian Americans are going to be the ones to kind of oppose and and deny the fact that this is happening because it's extremely painful to kind of come to face with the fact that there are forces that we can't immediately control that are kind of like controlling our lives. Um, and so we'd rather internalize these issues and say, oh, only if I can speak out more or if I display certain leadership skills or if I, you know, take interest in you know, talking about sports, then maybe I'll be accepted um, in the leadership circles. But, you know, it's, it's a much more um, of a systemic problem. No, I wonder, you know, within tech and banking and finance, they're traditionally seen as very prestigious or very competitive and very rigorous industries. And with that comes this like myth that Justin mentioned of, oh, these are meritocratic kind of places, right? Where if you work the hardest or you have the best credentials or even in tech where there was a fad of you might not even have to go to college or have to have higher education, but if you can learn how to code and if you have these projects on your resume, then you can land a fabulous, you know, job at Google or whatever. Um, you know, how do we reckon with that kind of stereotype of these industries as being quite, you know, having the high moral ground and being quite prestigious and, and, and rigorous and meritocratic, but in reality, you know, the experience is certainly not the case. Just to share some stats. So Asian Americans, we are the biggest minority group in the professional workforce, about 14%. Uh, you were the least represented at every leadership level. So it's really a whole pipeline. Um, and so roughly speaking, we're represented at half, about 7% at the leadership levels. Um, and Asian women uh, are represented the least, so even lower than Asian men. Uh, it's the lowest of any racial gender group. Um, and so in Silicon Valley, the, the issue, even though Silicon Valley has a great branding, and I think that's part of the ethos, the, the issue is actually worse than in Wall Street. Wall Street's had a longer time, I think, more reckonings that have happened, more lawsuits that's happened around discrimination, and and you know a lot more companies are public, so there's a lot more uh, discipline there compared to Silicon Valley, where we you know we really pitch this idea of a meritocracy, but really it's not. Um, one thing that we hear often as a defense to, hey, why are there more Asians in leadership or you know, there's discrimination with Asian Americans is that, hey, there are a lot of Asian Americans, you know, we're overrepresented, right? And, and, and you know, similar uh, arguments are made with schools, right? Hey, they're almost like there are too many Asians, right? But uh, if you actually look at uh, the profile of people who are selected to immigrate here, like they're some of the, you know, they're selected because of their engineering backgrounds and their degrees, right? So, uh, and, and the ones who actually make it out here from Asia are, are, are like winning the lottery to be here. Um, and second point is, even if even with a lot of Asians who are workers, you know, you may have a lot of Asian in your factory on the ground floor. Right? That, but that's where we're stuck, right? We're not actually advancing forward, you know, uh, onto the higher levels. And, and if you look at, you know, for a, a normal employee, like it, like there is a natural progression as you get older, you're able to 
rise in the company, right? There's and and of course everyone's different, but if you look at the entire population of the workforce, you know, there should be some averages where it works out across racial group. And to give you an example of where um, this disparity is very stark is um, uh, at Facebook or, or Meta. Uh, now it's over fifty percent Asian, so it's about roughly fifty five percent Asian. Uh, for the last decade, Asian Americans have been represented at half the level of the workforce, so uh, about 25% currently, uh, whereas for every other racial group, for white, black, Latino, uh, every group, there's uh, every other group, there's a parity 1.0 1. Uh, 1. racial or higher. So there's a, a equal or higher racial work with the leaders. But for, for some reason, for Asian Americans, we've been at half for the past decade, right? And, and this is a newer company. It's not something that has old school, like oil and gas company with a long legacy of disparities. But this is a company founded in Silicon Valley in the internet era uh, with tons of Asian Americans. So how is it possible that there's such a disparity? And you see similar patterns in, in tech companies. Uh, and of course, tech companies are quite data-driven. So, and you hear a lot about diversity and inclusion. So they're looking at these statistics, right? And they are, are sharing these statistics. There are Asian ERGs that bring up these issues, but why isn't that changing? So those are some of the questions we want to ask and really um, investigate further. I think it's quite surprising, right? Where if you are such like a dominant workforce in the industry, it, it seems like most of the leaders that I know that are that have an Asian background uh, in the tech industry, they're often like you, Justin, where they actually had to like come out and found their own companies to be able to kind of claim those executive roles. Is, is that something that you're seeing more common where this kind of discrimination is actually encouraging kind of the start of like entrepreneurism among the Asian community? Yeah, definitely. So my co-founder of SWA, Dave Liu, he writes about this. He has a fund dedicated to investing in Asian American and founders. And so he hears from a lot who are starting their own companies because they've hit the bamboo ceiling, right? Or the glass ceiling at their company. And so his um, saying is that go build our own house, right? Um, and I think, I think that's needed, but not everyone can go build their own company entrepreneurship is not for everybody but you see some really big examples of you know asian american who hit the ceiling and left and and did something amazing somewhere else but that's unfortunate so a, a big example which involves geopolitics is tsmc taiwan semiconductor and so the founder morris chang used to work at texas instruments uh really uh transform uh, the way that they make their chips was essentially leading the department, but was denied the top leadership role, right? And so he was so jaded, so dejected from that, he left the country, he left, and and circumstances came to be where the Taiwanese government then supported him, hey, why don't you build that in Taiwan? And so now TSMC is one of the most valuable and, and one of the most critically important uh, companies around the world, right? And, and But that, that could have been uh, Texas Semiconductor, it could have been here in America. And so, so when, when you, we have environments like that, we lose talent. We really hurt ourselves uh, and, 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 and you know, hurt the companies that Asian Americans are part of. If you don't mind me asking, how does it play out in the workforce? Do you, if, if there's a situation 
do it does a manager a supervisor a director directly say hey this is why we're not moving forward or do they give evasive answers is it a very uncomfortable situation when this person is looking to go up the corporate ladder and go into the c-suite and getting that pushback have you, have you been seeing that firsthand and how does that play out and how do you over is it possible to overcome that? Because there are a lot of CEOs, right, who are running major corporations who are of Asian descent. So they, they are able to hit those levels. But what happens for the vast majority? It's just, just knocking your head against the wall? You, you, you definitely hit on one of those common responses. Um, one of our one of our uh, volunteers, um, Vaishnavi, she had, you know, kind of, the way she described it was, you know, um, they'll use coded language, saying, making statements like very evasive statements, like, you know, we just don't see you as a leader, or you lack executive presence, um, or even sort of like injecting some of the stereotypes that Asians are, you know, again, perpetual foreigners that you're hoarding information or that you're you're not a great team player. Um, so when we then respond saying, well, could you? please provide us with like mm -hmm. sort of concrete examples or what are ways that we can improve to, to have this executive presence. They're, they're not able to really respond. And these are anecdotal stories, but the pattern is clearly emerging that these are the sort of responses we're getting um, when we are receiving stellar performance reviews and we're producing and producing amazing work products. But we are being then hit with these subjective comments about our likability, our leadership skills. Um, it's also very like personally demoralizing and powerful because you you are dedicating and spending the vast majority of your waking hours at work at your workplace, and when you're told that you know you're you lack these sort of like you know ethereal um, qualities to make you a leader, you start to really question. And at times, especially when you're an Asian woman and you don't see yourself reflected in the leadership like what is it about me that that is not able to propel me forward um yeah that's that's a very common tactic um it's almost like a playbook because we also um host uh, a monthly group support um with a licensed therapist who moderates our discussion and when we share our experiences it's really shocking how similar like, even if we're coming from like higher ed or medicine or tech industry or finance, all of our stories converge into this very similar themes of um, being told when we're trying to move up to the senior management level that we're told the very common um, uh, comments like I just described. Could it be, this is, this is just, it's just coincidental. I wrote a piece about a couple of weeks ago about bosses being career blockers where they purposely would keep people down. It didn't have any specific group in mind, but they would purposely keep people down because they know they're rock stars. And if they were able to go, they're going to climb right over that boss and go to the next level. And they need that person where they are because that's they're stealing all the credit, they're getting all the glory. And if you're able to kind of go around and go on top, that's it, you're done because that boss doesn't really have the skills to really do it. They're depending on it. I know that sounds weird, but does that kind of, because in the corporate space, let's be frank, these these things do happen. Is that part of it too, you think, that they just want to suppress it because they know if they don't, 
they're going to climb up and they're going to fall down. Yeah, I, I, we definitely heard examples where, hey, this person's indispensable. Yes. We need to, to run the team and be in this, you know, contributing role. Uh, and we can't have you be in leadership because, you know, you're just so indispensable. You're doing the jobs of like four or five people, right? And you're making me look great, right? So I think there's definitely that part of it as well. And and when it gets into the higher leadership level, it, it becomes more political. It's not as directly, hey, who has the most merit? Typically, there's some kind of uh, process where other directors or leaders, partners at the firm has to approve, right, support uh, these other candidates from coming forward. So it does also create a sense of like a kind of a boys club. Uh, and so I think what a lot of Asian Americans face, it's um, it's similar to what in general women face. And of course, if you're Asian American, Asian American woman, you you have kind of have like a double whammy in terms of the racial part and the gender part. And, and Michelle talked about some of the common tropes that, um, you know, Asian Americans are, are given, you know, in terms of say, hey, you're, 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 you're not communicating well, or you're, you're not aggressive enough, you don't speak up enough. What the research shows is for Asian women, if they speak up more, they're actually less liked. And so what that sets them up for is actually for getting fired from the company. So this is a standard that is impossible to hit, and, and it's not designed for something that really they can hit. It's really a way to explain, hey, why year after year, you know, despite stellar performance, you're not getting promoted. Oh, you're just you just got to work on your sharp elbows. You just got to work on this leadership training. And and you know, if, if you're if you're thinking about someone who's obviously really high achieving, you can bet that they've gone through these leadership trainings. Right. Oh, okay. I need to go leadership. Okay, I'll do that immediately. You know, they're getting amazing uh, uh, results from whatever training, but it's still not enough, right? And so I think at some point you're kind of crossing out all the different factors that you were given of why you're not being promoted, and you, you find out, okay, I've, I've done everything. It's still not happening, and I think that's where a lot of people are hitting. Uh, millennials and younger are starting to hit in their careers. They're seeing other people rise, from who you know may not have the same uh even credentials results uh and you know um and start realize hey it's not it's not just something that i could do there's something deeper there um and i think in, in the other part where it's hard one of the early questions hard to talk about because it's more sophisticated it's, it's not going to be you're called a name you're called some racial slur and then hey you're not getting promoted because you're asian like no one's going to say that these are sophisticated individuals they have HR departments, like law firms, right? That's really setting up, you know, these programs so that they're protected from, uh, you know, a lawsuit, right? And so that's where we, we're starting to pierce the veil of, okay, this is actually what it looks like. And there's some parallels to what we saw with the affirmative action case, right? In terms of piercing the veil for, hey, how come uh, at these Ivy Leagues, Asians seem to be capped at 20% or a percentage year after year after year? And in the lawsuit is where we found out, okay, there was a personal score that Harvard gave to, to, to applicants. And for Asians, for some reason, year after year, they had the lowest personal scores. And the personal score was a marker of their empathy, their courage, their kindness. So the Supreme Court Justice asked the Harvard lawyer, hey, are you saying Asians somehow as a racial ethnic group? By the way, Asians represent over half the world, over 4 billion people. You're saying Asians just somehow have lower courage, empathy, and kindness. Uh, and Laura couldn't, you know, they, he didn't answer the question because he, if you said yes or anything alluded to that, it is 
essentially racial discrimination, right? So, um, so we're starting to pierce the bill to it because it is a hard question and there, there are multiple factors. Some of it is that the individual employee may not be performing or there are things that they can improve on. But if you're looking at it across the company, hey, if it's every department for year after year, these are the ratios we're seeing, right? Something must be going on. Justin, I don't know if you follow this progression, but it sounds very familiar to other groups, like for Jewish people who came first generation, second, oh, pretty much the way you both describe it, and what made it snap is that with the universities, how they would, at Harvard and other, Yale, would only allow a certain amount of Jews into, you know, the, into the school. They wanted to keep, you know, the percentage down. Uh, it, it, to get into certain industries is really hard to get to next level. And have you have you noticed that in your data that there's some parallels how this happens? And then I wonder why is that? Like why would certain groups they pick out that that are high achievers instead of applauding the high achievers, instead of bringing them up and getting to the next level, they're trying to kind of damp it and keep them down. Yeah, there are definitely parallels. Um, and you know we have uh, many friends and. Allies in the Jewish community, and we, we look at the history of America, and, and you know the quotas that were uh, at Harvard, Ivy Leagues for mm -hmm. for Jews, and, and now it was applied to Asians. And in the past, uh, Jewish Americans they couldn't join certain investment firms, right? That's where like KKR and these other firms were started. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So yeah. Similarly, you know, we're starting to face okay, we're going to start our own firms, but we're at kind of an earlier journey, right? You know, I think we're, with the Jewish immigration in the 1800s, like we're a little bit maybe 100 years behind, but we're kind of starting to face that ourselves, right? And I think, you know, coming here in the modern era, we really believed in this idea of, uh, you know, American um, equality and justice and, you know, sense of opportunity, right? And I think when we start facing inequities, you know, that's where we're surprised, I think, um, you know, with Obama's election, we thought, hey, we're in this post-racial world, right? But then you start seeing, you know, main examples of racial discrimination, Black Lives Matter movement, Stop Asian Hate movement. We're like, okay, we're not in a post-racial world. And there's quite a bit of, you know, divides. And and I think this is really where, uh, as Asian Americans, some of it is what our group is, is doing and is really educating ourselves on our rights and our privileges, right, as an American. So, um, you know, in Asia, you know, most countries, even if they have democracy, it's very recent, right? So we really don't have a tradition of democracy, which came out of the West, right? So we don't have the right to free speech, the ability to vote, ability to protest, a fair judicial system, right? So these are the things that we traditionally didn't have in our, in our home countries. And actually, when you you know the um, uh, sort of the uh, the thought is is in, in Asia, a lot big part of Asia is that the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. So you don't want to be the one sticking out, right? And and, and so actually, what's well, different here, where it's like the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? So I think part of it is educating our our communities. Hey, no, we do have these rights. These are these are constitutionally protected rights that are hard fought and won. Right. And unless we use them, it, it, it is going to feel like, hey, you know, we're, it is a difficult fight for us. So. And one key distinction that's pretty obvious um, that I want to make is that, you know, just based on the way we look like there isn't a possibility that like we can hide our ethnicity. Um, a lot of, I think, Jewish people can kind of blend in and, and, and be white passing. But I think 
you know, one of the inspirations for me is um, are my three boys. Um, they were all born in Connecticut. They don't speak any language other than the English language. They hadn't ever been to Asia except like once um, last summer. So they view themselves as like fully American. They're on the soccer team, Boy Scout, like they're fully Americanized. And yet when, when they go to school, they're still being haunted with Chinese eyes and, you know, can you see, open your eyes. Like the sort of like racism I experienced in the 80s is still being played out in year 2024. And so when I, when I see that, I realize like even in the workplace, unless Asian Americans are willing to take up sort of their cross and, and speak up and, and fight against um, this like just perpetual discrimination and just strictly based on the way we look, our physical appearance that we cannot change, um, it's, it's just not going to stop. There are just too many people who are, um, who just can't seem to see past like literally our skin color and, and our physical appearance. Well, to take it to the next step, Michelle, what I found abhorrent is, I th and I'm losing track of the timeline, but I guess maybe during the pandemic, where you would see on TikTok or, or Twitter just horrific violence that it attacks on Asian people in San Francisco and, and, and other areas, which was just appalling and frightening. And it didn't seem to me, and again, I, you obviously you both know this all better than I do, but it didn't seem like it was a big reaction, which was frightening. You know, it was left with almost like a shrug. Oh, okay. You know, let's go move on to the next thing. And yeah, it's it's horrible not to get to that next level at work, but it's frightening if your kid is in school and they're being taunted and then you're out in the street and you have to worry about your own safety. That's the worst thing ever that you feel, how can I go outside and I'm vulnerable to be attacked? And that's horrific, but you don't really, at least I haven't seen any pushback to say, hey, we got to do something to make it safe. We have to have more police officers. We have to have whatever to keep this cohort safe because they're under attack. Has this got better or, or was it really horrible during the pandemic when things were really wild in a lot of the big cities or it's still going on? Yeah, I mean, the the, the violence part is for our communities it really shattered this view that hey you know we're accepted in in the country and you know we're not facing racism and a lot of the violence actually happened in like san francisco mm -hmm. where there are a lot of asian americans right in the bay area so uh you know we've worked very hard to you know be out here and put our families here and, and san francisco is nearly 40 percent asian uh and so to be beat up in a sense in, our, in your backyard right and for year after year, it's it's really uh, appalling, and um, part of it is the politics. So San Francisco, uh, our previous DA, was not prosecuting a lot of these crimes uh, against uh, uh, Asian Americans, uh, and you know, and so the community rolls up, and should we call the DA uh, for a DA that's that was willing to prosecute? Um, and I think the other problem is that there's very few of us in politics, few Asian Americans in politics, in media. There's few uh, organizations that's like really organizing us to speak up on these issues. Um, you have a lot of Asian American nonprofits, but historically they've you know, speaking up more on, let's say, immigration issues, right? And 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 there hasn't been um, 
I think in recent memory, such a rise in anti-Asian hate crime. I think maybe perhaps previous period, um, maybe 40 years ago during around Vincent Chin, when you had this animosity towards Japanese automakers, right? There was this, you know, time of increased competition, right? You know, we have a similar time today with, you know, really strong competition with China. And then of course there's the pandemic. So, so where you know, you're seeing politicians ban and flame, hey, you know, the reason you lost, you don't have your manufacturing jobs anymore. The reason Apple's making their phones in China is you, you have to blame China. You, you know, you don't blame Steve Jobs or the CEOs who decided that, right, to offshore. And it's, it's you know, and so when you, when you have the kind of rhetoric, you look, you look at someone like, you know, Rick, myself, Michelle, like, hey, look, they, you know, they look Chinese. And so let's blame them, right? Let's, let's take out our anger on them. And that's really, you've seen these cycles time and time again. And I think this time around, though, there's a lot more Asian Americans, you know, we're, we're, we make up close to 7% now of the country, we're the fastest growing um, uh, ethnic or racial group. Uh, and so, so for uh, a group like ours, seven Asian Americans, you know, we're founded by, you know, many first, second generation. So, so we've never been uh, really in activism. So, so myself, I think Michelle, like we've never been in activism until really this violence happened and, and really shattered our view, our sense of safety and belief that, hey, we live in this like post-racial society. Uh, and we realized, hey, we need to start standing up and leveraging our rights that we have right uh and i think that's unfortunate because you know what we expect is hey let's we'll be a good part of our society and and that people in power will do the right thing to make sure they're taking care of everybody but unfortunately with the way that the politics works unless you're at the table and the saying is that unless you're at the table you're on the menu and so it's kind of a really brutal way of thinking about it but you know there's some truth to that so part of not getting to the table is discrimination that can happen. So all these things are, are examples of barriers that prevent us from speaking up. There's some cultural, there's historical, and also part of it, it's this is a muscle that we really have exercised around political organizing. And so, you know, we think uh, organizing the workplace is actually a really great way to test that muscle, right? Hey, you know, we're just asking for a fair place, right? Maybe you need to get your uh, coworkers who actually represent half the company to speak up, right? That's a, that's more enough numbers there. So, Justin, Michelle, you know, blind and, and stand with Asian Americans. We recently collaborated on a survey to understand how pervasive, kind of put a number to these anecdotes that we were seeing, these uh, personal experiences that we we've actually endured and felt. We found that you know, sixty four percent of Asian American employees report personally experiencing workplace discrimination because of their race. Uh, but despite that high incidence, only 17% actually went through and reported the discrimination to anyone. Um, you know, what are you doing to kind of tackle that experience, but no action kind of issue? I think there are a lot of barriers um, and, and tactics of real actually real fear right that people face like a lot of like one obvious one is a lot of asian americans um may be on an h1b visa and if they were to lose that they have you know just just a very short period to be able to find another job and it's very common when you raise a complaint even if it's just an internal complaint for hr then to turn right back around and and terminate you you know they'll they'll use um 
riff or whatever reason, other reasons to terminate you. And, and that's a theme we see time after time. Um, and even if it's not like legal repercussions, um, you, you are gonna, you know, feel blowback from like oftentimes like the Silicon Valley or like private equity, for example, it's a very small group of companies and everyone knows each other. So even it's going to like really kind of jeopardize your ability to find your next job. So these are very real fears based on like your ability to find your next job. Um, there's also the cultural aspect of Asian Americans historically. We grew up with mostly immigrant parents telling us they were just like really literally trying to survive. So we were told to like not to make a fuss, to not ruffle the feathers, to just to work hard. And it's okay if you have to work twice as hard. Like it's important to just keep your job. It's like more of a survival mentality. Um, but, you know, we we want to encourage Asian Americans Like we often talk about like the sacrifices that our parents made um, to give us a better life. And maybe for us, that same sacrifice isn't going to be working 12 hour days doing like hard labor or like running a bodega in New York City. But, um, and I understand that for personal reasons, for financial reasons, a lot of people are not in a position to do that. But for those who are able to do so, like. We, unless we speak up, no one is coming to save us. No, you know, non-Asian person is going to like fight our fight or say, oh, you poor Asians, you guys are, you know, like represented, like overrepresented at, you know, all these like amazing prestigious companies, like no one's going to come and help us. So, you know, we really encourage our fellow Asian Americans to speak up and, you know, we offer ESWA, um, we want to offer them community support. Um, opportunities to amplify their stories using social media, um, our PR um, partners. Like it's, I think we're coming to a point where we just can't hold it back anymore. Like there's just come to a threshold where we've spent 10, 15 years working and and seeing all of our like non-Asians, like being non-Asian colleagues being promoted to senior levels. Um, and kind of awakening to the fact that like, wow, like unless I speak up and I'm brave enough to do that, even at a cost to to us as, a, as an individual, if it's going to help the community, we really do need to start speaking up. Michelle, do you, do you think this, this kind of goes back to what Justin was alluding to a little before that with, let's say other, other groups that have found a way to kind of build coalitions to have the you know the politician to, in in office to have the money to have the grassroots campaigns and to have the media on their side that they're able to do that because if you have the media and you have the grassroots you know uh, uh you know groups and you have the you know all those then it maybe i wonder is that what's missing and by doing that in part helps kind of where, where others were able to kind of maybe move forward that that'll work out as well too because i think like you were saying Justin, right like you haven't really had the immediate attention even with these you know horrific you know, violent attacks really not a whole lot of media coverage that you would think you should get for something like that yeah the media is something that uh you know we look quite a bit on and and um the hate crimes issues you know we talked to journalists asian american journalists and mm -hmm. it was the editors who didn't think this was newsworthy, right? Hey, why are we? How can you not think it's newsworthy? That's nuts. Exactly. And so, so for the workplace stories, it's quite a bit of lift for us to get these stories greenlit and 
journalists want to tell these stories, right? I think it's it's oftentimes the editors haven't seen stories like this, or they will think, hey, is this really a problem? Asian discrimination? Like, why are we telling this? Or is this maybe at a even higher level? Hey, is this going to help us sell ads or how does this look on the brand, right? But what we've been doing is we're essentially presenting a story, kind of a full story, right? We'll, we'll have the stats, we have the subjects, right? We're really kind of making it very easy to tell the story and, and have enough uh, supporting evidence. So this is really, I think, uh, where we, we love your social media. We say, hey, here, here are the posts we've done. Here are others who've spoken up on discrimination. And, you know, these have gone viral. You know, there's 5,000 likes. It's kind of, you know, half a million views, right? Clearly, this is newsworthy. Uh, and so I think that's where we're, we're trying to catch mainstream media up to really kind of the narrative, you know, the stories that need to be told are on Asian Americans. Um, but it's not easy. You know, there's there's a lot of barriers to kind of prevent that because because some of it, too, it could be, hey, they may look at a, their own company, their own firm, their own, you know, uh, 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 media company. Hey, we probably have these issues as well. So this is not another, this is the front maybe we don't want to speak about, right? Uh, and so, uh, but, you know, I think, Fortunately, we're able to uh, work with a variety of journalists. We have a really uh, amazing uh, sort of PR uh, folks around the table supporting us to help us tell these stories. But it is difficult. Like without without having this infrastructure, uh, it's it is really like David versus Goliath. But as you as you might know, like in in, in the David versus Goliath story, David had a whole army behind him. He was selected out of his people, right? So, but it really will feel like David with no army behind you and no slingshot. You there versus a Goliath. You're like, oh well, I'm going to lose, right? But we want to equip the Davids, uh, these these people who are fighting back, with the technology, the tools to fight, but also an army behind them. Right. And that's something that's missing. And, and with the Workplace Justice Initiative, we finally have resources, a platform, a community to start fighting back. And, and with every fight, we're getting better and really start understanding this, uh, you know, landscape better. And if you think about Asian Americans, we represent over half the world, all religions and backgrounds. So if we're able to represent Asian Americans, really, it's creating a more inclusive country for all of us. Right. And so I think uh, that's been part of the challenge as well. How do we bring together Asian Americans who really represent so many different cultures and backgrounds and within their own countries uh, or between countries, there's perhaps a lot of historical animosity as well, right? But here, no, like let's create this Asian American identity that's relatively new. So that's also part of the experience that we are creating because I think most of us prior to pandemic and all this stuff, we, we didn't really identify as Asian. I, I didn't. I, I thought, hey, you know, I'm Chinese American, right? And me and Michelle, Korean American. But we, the Asian American identity is is a label that have been tried uh, 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 and created out of the civil rights movement. But it really, I, I don't think folks have adapted to as much. But we were very explicit in creating stand with Asian Americans. Hey, you know, really should come together as Asian Americans, not separate as Chinese Americans or Indian Americans. You're like, hey, look, let's. We're, we're facing similar issues and we're going to be stronger together. Yeah, we you really can't underestimate the power of every tool, um, including like narrative change um, in like entertainment as well. You know, like Beef um, just swept the Emmys and, um, and like K-pop. Like, but at the same time, I think sometimes we have this like false sense of security um, in the growing numbers of Asian Americans or the overrepresentation of Asian Americans versus the general population in some of these companies. 
Um, and I think I want to encourage Asian Americans um, that if the situation and the circumstances are right, like litigation is an extremely powerful tool. And we want to create infrastructure like the NAACP or the ACLU Anti-Defamation League for these other minority groups. Um, and without creating these sort of like long-standing beacons of infrastructure for Asian Americans, we're going to be spread out and, and, and not focus in, in building a community and helping and really being there for one another. You mentioned this infrastructure. How, how can people get in touch with you and, and stand with Asian Americans to, to make use of the resources you have available? Um, we, we, we recently launched our Workplace Justice Initiative website, and there is a, um, a portal to report workplace discrimination. Um, there's a relatively easy Google form you can fill out. Um, sharing, um, you, you can't even share it anonymously. And then, then you know, we'll schedule a call with you, you know, hear your story, really depending on the sort of resources you're seeking, whether it's just for, for someone to lend a, you know, empathetic ear or to be connected with a lawyer, or if you want to join our uh, monthly um, group support um, session with, with our licensed therapist. Um, there are also resource guides and um, sort of um, Q and like F FAQ section of the website. Um, we're we're just getting started. We are also hoping to hire a full time staff attorney who can assist us um, with representing clients at the very initial stages of their potential um, legal claims. So these are some of the resources we have. Got it. No, thank thanks so much for coming on the show and and really walking us through your personal experience and kind of what Stand With Asian Americans is, is all about. I, I really appreciate that insight. Yeah, thanks Thanks for having us. And uh, one thing to take away is we want Asian Americans to know that they're not alone uh, in what they're facing. Uh, and, and that, you know, if you look at our website, you have so many stories of courageous Asian Americans who, who are willing to share their stories, you know, uh, share what they face. Some of it, uh, their its name, some of it's anonymous, but you know we want to encourage more people to share their stories, to come forward, and and know that their suffering is not in vain. Uh, their suffering is contributing to this larger movement, and every story, you know, every action counts. And so, um, you know, uh, we're very open to hear hear your stories and help out. Uh, and and we know that uh, by coming together and you know, all um, more of us speaking up and fighting back, you know, we can change this uh, within our, our immediate lifetimes. Awesome. Thank Justin and Michelle, thank you so much. Thank Take you. care. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. That's it for The Blind Ambition. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.